Okay. Um, good afternoon. Good evening, everybody. Um, it's great to see so many people here. And what is actually a very nice uh, May evening. Um, uh, welcome to this event entitled Can Markets Pursue Social Values? Uh, this event is being recorded for, for a podcast and so for those of you who will be listening subsequently, um, we're coming to you from quite an auspicious location, the Shaw Library of the, the Fabian window, the famous Fabian window, which says that you should pray devoutly and hammer stoutly. Um, and I think the Fabians would be quite interested in this topic, which is it, it's a broad and ambitious uh, question we are addressing today. Certainly one I don't think our panellists can answer exhaustively, but we have a quite extraordinary panel of experts here who are going to give us their views on this difficult, thought-provoking question. Um, to give you some context uh, for the event, it's taking, uh, taking place under the umbrella of the Beverage 2.0 Festival, uh, which has been taking place uh, for the last few months here at the LSE. Um, and the Beverage 2.0 celebrates the 75th anniversary of the very famous Beverage Report, um, uh, written by um, a director of the LSE, uh, which identified the five giants of kind of public policy concern at the time, um, prefigured the uh, introduction, the development of the welfare state in the United Kingdom. Um, the Beverage Festival has been uh, reimagining, re uh, revisiting the Beverage's five giants for the uh, 21st century. So, looking at these have been reimagined as poverty, healthcare, education, housing, and work. Um, the, uh, I suppose, in the in sort of where where precisely this um, event came from was that in the process of uh, planning the Beverage Festival, it came at the same time as the Prime Minister Theresa May gave a very provocative speech to celebrate the twentieth uh, um, anniversary of the independence of the Bank of England, where she gives what is a rousing defence of the values of the free market economy. Where she describes the free market economy as quote the greatest agent of collective human progress ever created. Uh, not really much nuance there. Um, and so the purpose of this panel is really to think about um, beverage and beveragean ideas of collective social progress in the context of, I suppose, 2018. And the big difference between Beverage 1.0 and Beverage 2.0 has, of course, been uh, the rise of, what, for want of a, a better term, I think it's a term that's uh, overused and occasionally abused, but the neoliberal thinking. And I suppose the, the, the criticism of... Um, uh, of, of government failure and the preeminence of, of market-focused thinking. So really, this panel is trying to open and ask the question, to what extent can markets and market-based public policies for the sorts of collective social concerns first identified in the original beverage report and still of pivotal importance today? Um, I'm going to introduce um, our very uh, distinguished uh, panel. So I will introduce them um, in the order in which they will speak. Uh, first, we have uh, Professor Simon Deacon, um, professor at the University of Cambridge and director of the Centre for Business Research. He is um, an expert in innumerable areas of legal research, and he's also very much an interdisciplinary scholar. Um, uh, working in the area of, for example, um, economic analysis of law, corporate law, uh, labor law, EU law. 
Um, we then have uh, Professor uh, Julia Black. She is a professor of law here at the um, Department of Law of the LSE, and she's also pro-director for research here at the LSE, and she is really one of the preeminent scholars in the world of, of, of the field of regulation, particularly um, the area of financial regulation. And we third will have um, Dr. Sean Ennis, who is a senior economist um, at the uh, competition division of the OECD in Paris. He has also had a very distinguished career in um, competition enforcement in several uh, governmental agencies. Uh, and I guess I would perhaps, uh, particularly he, he is an expert in, in uh, innumerable areas of competition policy, but perhaps of, of greatest interest for this particular panel. He spearheaded um, the OECD's uh, recent, very, I suppose, groundbreaking work on the link between competition policy and inequality, and to what extent, the extent to which markets can actually be used to solve problems with inequality. Uh, so, um, I'm, each of the panelists is going to speak for about 10 to 15 minutes, and then we will open uh, to the floor for questions. So, Simon. Well, thank you very much, uh, Neve. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'd like to say something, first of all, about Beveridge and his, his ideas, um, and then to relate uh, Beveridge's legacy to debates today about labor markets and how social security um, is organized. Before Beveridge wrote the, the famous report on social insurance in 1942, he already had a very long career of being uh, an activist, a reformer, uh, and a researcher, and an academic. Back in the 1900s, in 1909, He'd written a book called Unemployment, a Problem of Industry. And the title of the book says everything about the approach he and the other Fabians took to the analysis of the labor market. Unemployment, according to Beveridge and the Webbs and other Fabians, was not the fault of individuals. It wasn't the fault of individual malfeasance. It wasn't the fault of shirking by workshy people. It was a feature of industry, of the way in which capitalism was organized, and above all, it was a feature of the way employers operated. Employers hired uh, people in a way that created underemployment, created irregular and casual work. And what in those days was called casual or irregular work, today we call labor market flexibility, and we laud it as an important feature of the way our society works. The downside, of course, with casualization, to give it its proper name, is that it denies workers a regular income, but often gives employers uh, a cheap pool of labor from which to draw. It wasn't just employers, either. It was also the state at that time, in the early 20th century, the state itself perpetuated the conditions for a casual labor market through what was then known as the poor law, the, uh, the predecessor of social security law. Um, in many ways, the poor law um, has been misinterpreted. Um, as long ago as the um, 17th century in this country, there was a poor law, and to be poor and to be in poverty didn't mean lacking resources. It specifically meant um, being wage-dependent, being in wage labor, not having independent means and working for your living, at a point when most people sort of had access to the extended family or to the land. To be poor was to be dependent on an employer or on the state. But the laws regulating the so-called poor in this country from a very early stage of its industrial development actively supported the emergence of a labor market. There wouldn't have been a labor market and there wouldn't have been an industrial revolution in this country had it not been for the poor law, which provided so-called outdoor relief, cash payments to the unemployed and to the elderly and to the sick, organized at parish level in the thousands of parishes which operated after the end of the Tudor period, but under legislation that was national. 
and that national legislation required local parishes to raise a poor relief through taxation of property at local level and forbade charitable giving because it was deemed to be inefficient. It was more efficient at the state organized social security. Now that idea, those ideas faded away in the 19th century to be replaced by the workhouse and Beveridge and the Webbs were coming to this debate at the end of a period in the 19th century when it gradually became obvious to nearly everybody that the workhouse system wasn't curing unemployment. It wasn't counting unemployment, but it didn't cure unemployment, and it didn't cure poverty, because poverty in London and other major cities in the early 20th century affected around a third of all households. Now, today, that's we have figures not far away from that, around 25 to 30% of all children in this country are in poverty. So we're going back to those days. What Beveridge and the Webbs saw was that the labour market is not a natural thing. Labour is not a natural commodity, nor is the employment contract. These are institutionally constructed, and the state constructs markets for better or worse. And there are no real markets with sufficient scale to operate except through the nation-state. And despite talk of globalisation, that remains the case today. In the early 20th century, we didn't have globalisation, but we had imperialism, which again, in many ways, was the same thing. The Fabian answer to globalisation of the time and to casualisation was a complex one. There wasn't a single solution. There wasn't a universal basic income or something like that, which apparently cured everything. There were instead a series of individual incremental measures like labour exchanges, like social insurance, so workers to state and employers together pooled the risks of unemployment, sickness and old age. There was eventually, in 1942, a national insurance system. The date is significant because of the point when the war was still being fought. Anything less than a truly national-level system of social insurance was deemed inadequate at affecting the relevant pooling of risks. But the point about social insurance was that it was both an ethical and an efficient principle. Uh, without social insurance, of course, people can get insurance, but economists will tell us that in most insurance markets, adverse selection means that insurers in the private sector tend to insure the low risks. They insure the wealthy and the rich before they insure the poor. Beveridge's scheme of social insurance was designed to insure everybody through the mechanism of waged employment. Waged employment was the mechanism through which national insurance contributions were collected. Waged employment was the basis upon which one acquired social citizenship in Beveridge's model. The other great report Beveridge wrote about the same time was a document called Full Employment in a Free Society, uh, published as a political document by the Liberal Party in 1945, but which greatly informed the government's white paper on full employment of 1944. And the wording matters, the Fabians were very good at finding the right word for things. So Beveridge did not refer to a high employment rate as we do today. Full employment did not mean that everybody had just any job. Beveridge was clear that full employment meant sustainable and we would now say decent work for everybody. And that was reflected in the minutiae of national insurance legislation. So a worker in Beveridge's scheme could decline an offer of employment if the wage did not meet a benchmark of a decent wage set by collective bargaining and if it didn't reflect that worker's previous earnings for a certain period of time. So today's zero-hours contracts which are a form of casualization of an extreme kind, are, of course, today triggered in large by the rules of the social security system, including universal credit, which is deliberately designed to force people into low-paid, insecure, part-time and casual work. 
we accept this today as a society, and virtually all politicians of whatever political party still today uh, laud the high employment rate enjoyed in this country, while accepting, of course, that at the same time there's a huge problem in this country of poverty. The two are connected. One cannot have a full employment rate in which around a third of the population has no access to regular stable work, and that's growing all the time, and at the same time cure poverty. The answer of fiscal credits, tax credits, to top up wages, which were introduced by a Conservative government in the 1980s and greatly expanded by new Labour, faces its own problems. Because tax credits target wages ultimately onto inefficient employers. That's what the Webbs noticed, that a poor law system which subsidises wages that way is actually really subsidising not the worker but the employer. And it reduces, at the same time, incentives for productive investment, which is partly why investment in this country is falling, and we have the strange phenomenon of capital shallowing, labour replacing capital. That's the wrong way round, of course. In a capitalist economy, for its work, labour should be expensive and capital should be cheap. We need to see labour replacing capital investment that will produce more productive firms and more efficient firms and will eventually also employ more people. This is what the Fabians understood. Now, that message, of course, uh, I'd say appears enormously radical to us today because we have a group of people who don't accept the premises of flexible labour markets. They didn't accept the premise that shareholders owned firms and were entitled to the highest possible return on their investment. They didn't accept either that capitalism was about to end, as some people now believe. They didn't believe that they were then in late capitalism, and nor should we now. They didn't try to design a utopian plan for a world that wouldn't exist in their lifetimes, but they were concerned with incremental reforms that would improve people's lot. A modest, and these days perhaps a rather unfashionable, agenda. Because, of course, these days, the big idea, especially if it can be summed up in three words like universal basic income, matters more than incremental, hard-won reforms. Now, that, of course, we, we could change. Um, we need to think about markets, I think, very differently. We need to think about both ethics and efficiency at the core of the way markets work. And markets which are not ultimately equitable are not sustainable markets. We need to think about the role of the state in creating conditions for fair and efficient industry and markets. And we need to think about the role of social scientists and what they do, how they present their messages, what kind of message they try to get across. This, I think, would be Beveridge's message to us today and a message, I think, which has a certain amount of resonance. Thank you. So I'm going to pick up some of the themes from that, taking a similarly historical perspective, but looking at um, the role of the state in markets in a slight, coming in a slightly different angle through, through business and through the regulation, both the constitution of those markets and the regulation of the relationships which exist within them through corporations, through contracts, and through the conduct of the way that business behaves. Um, Again, to go back, I suppose to start where we are now and then to go back. So the paradigms that we have now, which are, they're familiar to us now, but they're actually, needless to say, relatively new, that of uh, the neoliberal um, paradigm, which is that, that markets are, Um, actually quite institution-free, which to a lawyer always jars. Um, And the the boundary of the state's intervention in markets stops at 
whatever is necessary in order to assure the efficiency of those markets. So the question for an economist in this paradigm very easily would be answered, do markets deliver social values? Well, yes, they do, because they allocate resources efficiently through the price mechanism. Um, and what is necessary is in order to ensure that those markets function appropriately so that resources are appropriately allocated, that prices are appropriately set. Uh, and in order to do that, certain preconditions need to be in place. You need to have a range of buyers and sellers. You need to have access to full information. You need, very interestingly, to have um, unbiased predictions as to the future. Always a little bit of a challenge. Um, you need to make sure that the price of ex negative externalities is internalized into the cost of the good which is being produced. Um, and there might be some issues about coordination problems that, that there may be a role for, for, for the state possibly to, to come in and resolve. If we were to roll back, so, so therefore from that was born in the 80s the shift of the state out of the nationalizations which had accompanied the reforms that Simon was talking about in the early 1940s. The early 1940s, mid-1940s, post-Second World War, saw the wave of nationalizations. The central bank nationalized railways, coal and steel, still a little bit later. So you'd have that intervention into the state. The 80s was a shift back away from that into we retreat, uh, lots of slogans, the state goes into rowing, not steering, etc. And we still are absolutely within that paradigm now. So in terms of understanding the role of the state, then it is to, to regulate, as I say, to, to correct those market failures and really not to participate in the market as a market actor. Both are complete fallacies. Okay? The state has always participated in the market as a market actor. And the way that it's participating now, in fact, a core element of the industrial strategy is that the state is to be the entrepreneurial state. There's a wonderful slide by an economist actually at UCL, Mariana Mazzucati, who launched her book here quite recently. She has a slide of the iPhone. Every single technological component of the iPhone was funded by government money, funding research into technology. The internet is another prime example. So the state has never set itself aside from engagement economic activity, and nor has the state ever confined itself in intervening in the way that markets work and the way that businesses function into the perfection of the market economy. So if I was to roll back from where we are now, going right back through, well, starting off with the the Romans always use the, the price of bread always comes up at this point, price of bread being regulated to maintain public order. As you move through shipping, Plimsoll line has its origins with the Minoans. If you move through the guild system, a state-facilitated system of market-generated quality control, which was authorized, sanctioned, and chartered by the state. If we roll on through the Industrial Revolution, then we see the traces of much of our modern regulatory state, as we're used to thinking about it, actually coming through the inspectorates that came up with industrialization. With industrialization, you had the Factory Acts, you had the Passenger Shipping Acts, some of the very early um, regulation for passenger safety actually associated with uh, migration from Ireland actually out to the US. 
you have a focus, therefore, on regulation, not actually about protecting markets or correcting market failure, but about managing risks, about managing risks to health and safety. You have then regulation which comes in post the smogs, needless to say, in the 50s for the Clean Air Acts. So you have, in other words, the pursuit of social values all the way through. Now, some of those things you can recharacterize and have been recharacterized in economic terms as a correction of externalities, um, as therefore some type of perfection. But there's always been a very strong streak also of ethical regulation, forms to look at, for example, the ethics of genetic testing, of embryo research, of animal procedures, of regulation of testing on animals. They are very, very strong expressions of a collective, normative set of values of how we should pursue technologies and where the limits of those technologies should come in. There's also a very strong pursuit through state regulation of institutional values. I work in the area of legal services, legal services regulation. One of, the, one of the legislative mandates that we have as a legal services regulator is to uphold the rule of law and protect access to justice. So in terms of the recognition of the role of the state, to say that the role of the state is to be confined and the state has to self-confine itself to this role of protecting markets, it's never been true. Um, the state has always stepped beyond that. And I think it's what's quite interesting is even in those areas of the economic regulators, as they are termed in terms of those uh, nationalized industries that were then regulated, then, yes, there was an initial very pure economic sense that you're there for price control and um, to manage the, the monopoly industry, but very quickly became overlaid with social obligations. Universal service obligation, for example, was obviously the first contender, moving in now to protection of vulnerable customers, moving in now to the very interesting question from an economist's point of view about how do you set a fair price. So can markets uh, pursue social values? I've talked so far about governments prompting markets to pursue social values. And one of the reasons, obviously, that market, the government may need to step in there is because they think markets can't do that on their own. I think one of the questions we then have to think about is, well, in what instances do markets pursue social values? And here I think there's some really interesting examples, partly from self-regulation, but actually more from the transnational regulatory regimes which are non-government based which, but also aren't entirely market firm based either in the sense they're not being run by a profit making company and I'm here I'm thinking of some of the for example the fair trade forest stewardship council always comes up in this context global wrap clothing standards in the clothing industry um, the number of different st stamps you can have for fair trade in coffee uh, for example. And what you have here, I think, is a really interesting example of actually how markets can be prompted to work to pursue particular social values, but without the intervention of the state or even the support of the state. So what you have, for example, in Forest Stewardship Council, which is always a very good example in this uh, context, is a business-to-consumer, B2C, regulatory regime in the sense that what you are focusing on, however, is the entire supply chain to ensure that the wood, in this case, has been sourced from sustainable forests. Very complex global transnational regulatory regime uh, in terms of its dynamics, 
It's very democratic in the way that it tries to operate. That goes at some very internal challenges. But there's, not, there's no role of the state there. The state may then incorporate it, and in fact in some of the UK's legislation around forestry and forest management, some of those standards are incorporated, but it can actually exist without the authority of the state. And many of those global labelling regimes are actually enforced, as I say, through the supply chains and those global supply chains. So, yes, markets can, in some circumstances, pursue social values. They tend to be quite specific, issue-specific, and they rely particularly in the business, if they're in retail um, context, for consumers to actually know, understand, and care about the social value that they're trying to pursue. Are governments necessary in order to prompt markets to pursue social values? Yes, they are. Have they always done that over time? Yes, they have. Is it therefore absolutely necessary to think about how we should be perhaps reconfiguring our thinking not only around how we provide for the, um, to, to mop up the excesses of capitalism, which is one way that you can describe our social welfare system, but actually a reconfiguration of both, in a word, the regulatory project and the beverage project in a way that means we can have not two parts of government and in different ways addressing markets, but in a way which makes us rethink the paradigm that we're in at the moment. That's quite a big challenge. I don't quite know how we would go through that. But if we're to rethink, try to rethink beverage without rethinking the macroeconomic paradigm in which we're currently operating, then we're only going to come up with the same variants of the same solutions that we already have. What we need, I think, is a much more radical transformation in our thinking around both. Thank you. Well, I'd, I'd like to uh, follow up with some more specific comments. And I just start by saying it's a great pleasure to be here with you today. Um, and that what I'm saying does not necessarily represent the views of the, the organization for which I work or the member countries of that organization. And I'm going to talk about some specific uh, economic work that we've been undertaking with some colleagues of mine. Um, and I'd really like to start, though, by uh, saying that I'm going to speak specifically about inequality. So I'm not going to be speaking of social values in general, but focused on inequality. And, and that's uh, because um, uh, I think there are some, some, some profound issues to address in that area. Um, but also, I want to emphasize that well-performing markets sometimes have the potential to reduce inequality. And that can be initially a surprise uh, as, as an argument or as a conclusion. And, and so I want to provide some, some body that goes behind that. Um, and clearly, uh, equality has been an important social value for centuries. And, and markets and market power have also been important and a justification for state intervention. If you go back in time to uh, uh, laws about regulating the crossing of bridges, um, I think there was a real concern with local market power that led to the creation of such laws. And, and, and when 
uh, bridge owners, and bridges were privately owned, as you may recall, uh, many times, when, when they would charge any price they wanted, that would particularly uh, have adverse effects on uh, uh, farmers and small producers who were seeking to, to trade and to sell their goods um, across the other side of the water. So, uh, so I think the interest in state, act, state actions to control monopoly is really goes back um, a long time, and in many ways it's even at the, um, the origins of competition law in North America. Um, if you look at the way the railroad monopolies were behaving, that was a tremendous motivator politically for the creation of competition law. So um, the, uh, the, the, the owners of the railways um, were um, sometimes uh, referred to as uh, robber barons, um, but uh, the reason they, they earned this name uh, was because they were charging very high prices when there was no absence of railway competition to serve farmers. When there was uh, competition, they charged much more reasonable prices. So um, let me start with an example of how uh, competition can create some, some benefits. And I, I want to uh, focus here on what's happened with Mexico mobile telephone um, uh, calling in the last five years or so. Now, what's, um, what's been very dramatic is uh, change in... Um, regulatory attitudes to, that has promoted competition in mobile telephone calling. Um, and uh, prices in Mexico fell by between 60 and 70 percent over a period of two or three years. Um, that's, uh, I think, uh, a finding that, uh, that is, is well documented and you could confirm with anyone you know who's Mexican. Um, What's interesting, though, is, is that there are, there are surveys of how much different income groups were spending on mobile telephony. And, and the, um, uh, the results of that suggested that the poorest decile of the population, so that's represented at the far left in dark blue, was spending, uh, before these changes in prices, around 6% of its income on mobile telephone calling. There are always questions about the accuracy of reporting of income and, 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 and of spending, but these are, this was much higher than any of the other uh, decile groups. Um, and, and the simple reduction in prices of mobile telephony, if, uh, if that didn't change the, con the consumption, would lead to an effective increase in the real income of the poor uh, by 4%. So this, this is quite uh, an enormous change coming from increased competition in one sector. And it's rather uh, surprising. It's not necessarily replicable across sectors. But where there are sectors that are heavily consumed by the poor, uh, competition uh, can generate some substantial benefits. Now, uh, at the same time, inequality is very substantial across the OECD. So uh, this picture shows income inequality by... Um, various groups focusing on the difference between the bottom 90% and the top 1%. Um, it's, there's very substantial differences. It doesn't break out um, what's going on for the very poor. Uh, but the, uh, the, the very uh, high-income earners, uh, so the top 1%, are in dark red here. 
in, sh in terms of their, uh, their share of the pie of income. And it's not quite as much as I would have thought it would be for the top 1%, but it's still uh, disproportionate. But when you come to wealth and wealth inequality, that's much more uh, substantial, the differences um, uh, across groups. And, um, and so I'm going to talk about both of these points. And really, I want to emphasize that one of the sources of inequality may be uh, related to market power. Market power uh, has an interesting uh, effect, and it's one that's been largely ignored uh, when focusing on sources of inequality uh, through much prior work. So, so market power does the following. It generates profits for the companies um, um, engaging in, 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 in enjoying that market power, shall we say, uh, above the competitive rate of return, and it raises prices to consumers, uh, reducing their real income and their ability to save. And, and the bottom line is, is that uh, this, uh, this uh, creation of market power can hurt the poor um, and those without an equity interest in profits, um, which is actually a very large percentage of the population. And so we're going to uh, show some figures about that. Um, but I just note also that Piketty, um, in his well-known work on inequality, is a little bit skeptical about the value that markets might provide. Um, um, and, um, and so this, this work is, is something of a, a qualification of what he's, he says on that front, um, but not his general points about increasing um, inequality in recent years. Now, uh, we've, what we've done is to produce a model, and since um, I'm, I, I didn't want this whole session to go past without any equations being shown, I, I do uh, have to put these up for you. But the point is that it's a, rel a relatively simple model. Um, and so these equations uh, started out much more complicated and they end up like this. And so for me, as an economist, it's beautiful. Um, and one of, one of the points is that, that market power um, is, is closely related to um, how, uh, how wealth patterns will change for different groups. And uh, basically competition, implementing a more competitive environment than we have now will raise the wealth share of households who are at the lower level of the wealth levels um, and drop the wealth share of the households that are at the top levels. And this is a very natural um, uh, consequence of the fact that when there's market power generating uh, income, that is then uh, turned into wealth um, that, uh, that is... Um, uh, potentially problematic when the market power itself is considered illegitimate. Now, um, I think it's important to point out that market power can come from legitimate sources and illegitimate sources, and there's not any convincing work that shows the extent to which uh, market power comes from one as opposed to the other. But it is uh, certainly true that uh, cartels and anti-competitive activities uh, have... Um, created some, well, have, have affected enormous amounts of economic activity over time. And, and so what we did is we estimated some uh, markups that are above what you might think of as, as a, a, um, a, a minimal level for each sector and then um, averaged across uh, sectors in each country. And we found the extent to which there are ex excess markups in different countries. One uh, finding that came out of this uh, type of approach is that the United Kingdom actually has 
um, lower um, markups or lower excess markups on average than other countries um, in this study, so that would, in which we had eight. And um, the other point in this model is that marginal propensities to save are quite important, and the relationship between the marginal propensity to save and the average propensity to save. Um, it's, it's, I guess, I hope, intuitive that uh, the, more, the more you will save out of your income, the more there will be a contribution to building up wealth. And uh, the truth is that, uh, that the higher income uh, part of the population has a much higher marginal propensity to save than others, and we cannot fully uh, reflect that in the simplicity of this model, but that uh, makes our results much, much stronger um, if it's followed through into a simulation. I just want to uh, uh, show you what, what the impact is of a 1% markup reduction across different um, income groups, and, and what you see is that uh, that 1% reduction has uh, the largest impact on the top 1% of the income earners, and then once, uh, and a, approximately no impact between the 80, 81 and 90th uh, percentile. But then uh, for everyone below the 80th uh, percentile level, there's a positive impact from these markup reductions. And that's very much the point of this, this Mexican work also, that, uh, that reducing excess markups uh, can really uh, create substantial benefits, and competition is one force that can reduce those excess markups. So um, maybe I could just uh, show that there's also um, a, con a follow-on effect from this, if you will, on wealth, um, and this figure illustrates how uh, there could be rates of change in the wealth level of the top 10% of the population if there were more uh, uh, competitive... Uh, environment, and so if the excess um, uh, were eliminated, uh, and there's some range to this because we have uncertainty about uh, the uh, the ratio of uh, marginal propensity to save to average propensity to save, but uh, one of the, the the headline finding is that on average, um, excess market power could account for between six and 21 percent of the wealth of the top decile, and that. Uh, those numbers could actually be um, almost twice as high uh, if, if we take into account the true variation in marginal propensity to save between the very wealthy and the very poor, because the very poor do not save. Uh, but in our model, we, we do attribute some savings to them. So, uh, so what are the uh, uh, implications of this? It's, it's that perhaps a competition policy to control monopoly can actually lead to some uh, reduction in the illegitimate redistribution of income and wealth towards the richest and the most powerful, um, and thus contribute to an environment with less inequality. It's not uh, going to solve any concerns we might have overall, but it is, I think, an important element of, um, of the puzzle as a whole, and one that's largely been um, ignored in the past. And just to give you a sense of what some of the numbers might, might be, um, it, if, if we focus on wealth levels, uh, it might very w well be that um, uh, the, 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 up to 16 trillion U.S. dollars um, in wealth in these, these eight countries in our study may come from excessive market power. So, uh, so I think that gives it, that is 
uh, a very large number, um, if, even if we think in terms of uh, annual GDP of, of large countries. And so, uh, so I think that there's, there's definitely um, uh, much room for further exploration of these types of points, and I'd refer you to a paper we have on SSRN that goes into the details of this. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you so much to um, the panelists for those, I suppose, thought-provoking uh, sort of introduction to this question. So can markets pursue social values? I think very much it depends. Markets seem to be a source of exploitation of the most vulnerable, um, we think particularly if we think of the, the context of the labor markets in certain circumstances, but also um, Sean's work suggests that they're also perhaps liberating for vulnerable individuals in other circumstances. I was particularly um, taken with the idea of perhaps the, ca the capitalist rationale for the pursuit of, of socialist values was coming through in, in Julia's remarks. Um, the idea that perhaps rather cynically um, uh, a, a firm might pursue a, a, a social agenda um, in its business model. Um, which, I guess, brings us to the portion of the proceedings where we open uh, to the floor for questions. Um, so uh, if you could perhaps um, uh, mention who you are um, before uh, your, your question um, to the panel. Hopefully there are some questions. I wonder, listening to the, your great views on, on answering the question, the purpose of the lecture, whether anyone has studied totally unregulated markets by which I'm thinking of a criminal market or a criminal economy? And if so, does that give us any great insight into what happens when there is no intervention at all, apart from perhaps law enforcement stepping in? So that's, I'm wondering if that is a totally organic way of people operating without any ethical or state intervention. Um, and is that a valid thing to look at? Um, I hope so, because we're just launch launching a journal on the new LSE Press called Illicit Economies. Um, so I hope it's valid. I <laughs> um, don't know if this is on. Um, so, well, I'll jump in, Simon, and then you jump in. So, so the answer is yes. So there's been a lot of work, particularly by um, uh, economic historians, sociologists and markets, economic sociologists, some by socio-legal scholars, which has looked at completely unregulated markets, which may be licit or unlicit, illicit, um, to look at actually the social norms by which they operate. Uh, so the Maghreb traders are particularly well studied, the diamond markets, uh, for example. Um, and there are also those that look at, um, if you were to look at the illicit economies, if you look at um, a drug market, basically, then you find, you find the same dynamics occurring um, as you do in, in, a trans, in a market which has no, no legal underpinning, whether legal or, or illegal. Um, similar ones occurring. Social networks, social contacts, and the ability to have some form of enforcement mechanism which means that your, um, your contracts will be enforced over a time. So if you look at the evolution of um, economics, historians always go to champagne fairs at this particular juncture, but you can go to other places as well in terms of different markets. You know, you've got, you pay part now for delivery sometime in the future when the harvest comes in uh, or the, the champagne is ready, whatever. Um, but whenever your drug market, etc. So you need some way of ensuring that you don't have uh, defection, okay, in that settlement period, to put it in its technicalities. And the way that that's enforced is through social norms, 
And the thing that then tends to vary is how nice or how not nice are people in enforcing those social norms. So in other words, it's a, a version of narcos. Um, so it comes in, in basically you have violence coming through. Or is it actually through the power of family connections? And in the diamond markets, for example, it's power of family connections so that you didn't defect because then you'd be ostracized by that entire social community. So it was those social norms very powerfully that kept those contracts in place. And so, yes, there is. And it's really, it is absolutely fascinating because it just then you then start to see informal systems of arbitration coming out. You then start to see informal systems of dispute resolution. And one of the things that then distinguishes licit from illicit is basically the role of violence. Uh, in the maintenance of those of those contracts and those relationships, and then and then you've got monopoly power, you've got trying to interrupt interruption of supply chains, you've got duties being paid as things cross borders, again licit or licit in the form of bribes or non. So it's a really interesting study on on a parallel economy. Yeah, I I, I agree with that, but I I'd, I'd add that there's probably um, some kind of relationship between the extent of a market and the formality of the mechanisms which underpin it. So very informal markets uh, operate on trust and social contact networks um, and force. And they can be extremely effective amongst uh, small groups or people who know each other. But they're not so effective uh, when it comes to anonymous trading. Now, um, in our type of society, um, the vast volume of trade in a country like ours is still anonymous trade or is anonymized in a way or it's trade through corporations where the identity of the individual may not matter but the perpetual identity of the corporation helps to maintain trust. So I, I, I think that it, studying informal in markets is fine and many sociologists and social scientists are interested in the informal. You can count on the fingers of one hand the number of serious studies of the formal is very little studied, and uh, sociologists like Arthur Stinchcombe, who study it, are renowned but unread, by and large. Um, and to understand the formal is to understand the way that formal markets do often tend to have a deep division of labour. Um, they are often, therefore, better able to capture uh, specialisation than informal markets, and that's also leaving aside violence as a mode of enforcement. Of course, the state employs violence, mediated violence as a mode of enforcement. The state is a monopoly, has a monopoly over force or should do in uh, a rule of law state and a market economy. One of the roles of the state is precisely to achieve that monopoly. So, of course, the violence hasn't completely disappeared, has it? But it's mediated in, in, a, in a different way. So, sure, th there's been a, a great deal of time spent analysing the informal and lauding it, but actually um, the formal, which requires a rule of law state and requires an organized market economy, uh, may maybe has, has quite a lot to be said for it. Question? Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, question for Sean about, um, about inequality. Uh, you said uh, very eloquently about how important it was to reduce market power, but it strikes me that um, you know, these days multinational corporations are getting bigger and bigger. It's an increasingly globalized market, and national regulators have got less that they can do to increase competition. So um, what role can international bodies play uh, to reduce um, monopoly power? 
Yeah, I think this this uh, um, this raises a question of can international authorities cooperate with each other in one way or another, whether it's a strong way or a weak way. And I think there's a really strong interest in um, in cooperating and ensuring that um, outcomes uh, that are involving the same type of behavior by the same entities are treated in similar ways in different uh, geographical jurisdictions. And, and um, certainly for, uh, for cartel behavior, there's been uh, really a lot of progress in um, achieving the type of uh, common uh, approach that one, one might desire. And that is um, sadly lacking um, in some, some of the other uh, types of areas that might be related to abuses of dominant position or, or, uh, or mergers in which one country feels that um, uh, an out, a merger is, is fine and another feels it's not. And then it's, it's difficult to, um, uh, to mediate between those two very basically different positions. Question right at the front. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I think it's possibly uh, reasonable to argue that it's actually markets under capitalism is impossible. The very purpose of capitalism is, I would say, the economic rape of the people of the planet. And this would then lead to the destruction of markets by their... Because uh, markets would make communities richer from the local up. So the capitalism job is to make sure that the, the death of market is done through monopolies, which is why we have Asda owned by Walmart, why we have train companies that are owned by internationals who don't pay tax. All this takes money, wealth, intellect, and aspirations of, the, of not only the people, but of a country away from a country. That's what capitalism does. And there is no markets. All markets will be swallowed up by monopolies, by billionaires, Capitalism job is to destroy markets, not create them, and therefore destroy the political aspirations and wealth of communities across the world. Thank you. Okay, uh, um, would anyone like to tackle that? Uh, okay, yeah. so no, no, yeah, well, yeah, I, yeah, 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 no, no. So, so therefore, um, what's good, if anything, about capitalism? Okay, so um, Marx um, famously said that that capitalism. Uh, created inequality and exploitation and injustice, but also uh, innovation and technological change. So there was this enormous increase in growth, yes, and destruction of the environment, um, which began around about 1800. So historical records appear to show that uh, up to that point, uh, almost everywhere, whatever part of the world we might be considering, growth is really small and is not sustained over a long period of time. Something happened around about 1700, 1800, that changed that, and that was capitalism. And, of course, it creates these huge contradictions. That's right. That's what Marx also emphasized. The Fabians and others later came along to try to manage capitalism. That, that was clearly their agenda. And I think for most of the 20th century, uh, people thought they had more or less succeeded. You can't manage something you don't understand. Well, I think... Sure. Well, I think that I, I, I think it's cyclical that whatever success they achieved was only temporary. And since about 1918, in particular since 2008, the financial crisis, um, I, I think it's become abundantly clear that that Fabian settlement 
Um, that didn't work, but nor did a neoliberal reaction to it. So now many people um, would, sure, would, would be very, very skeptical about the future of capitalism, that, and that's why we hear people talking about it ending. I, um, as, a, as a researcher, as a social scientist, if I, if I take a purely descriptive or positive approach to this, don't see capitalism about to end. Okay, that's why I'm more concerned with managing it uh, effectively than hurrying along its destruction. But I, I do recognize that um, it's not um, straightforward. No, it, it, yeah. Well, I, I, I think, I th okay, I put my cards on the table. I'm a big critic of capitalism, but I don't believe that capitalism can only be managed in, in a way that creates poverty. Yeah. Thank you. Um, would anyone else like to come to this? Okay. Any other questions? Yep, yeah, we've got a hand right at the back there. Um, I've got a question for Simon. You said that Beveridge was being quite utopian, but sorry, he didn't want to search for a utopia when he was first creating the the reforms and trying to find a way to like control capitalism, as you just said. But do you think it's still utopian to try and find a market that pursues all social values and not just inequality and fair tr fair trade? No, I, I, I don't think the, the search for some reconciliation between market principles and fairness principles is, is utopian. I, I, th I think it's something which is worked out all the time um, in, in, in lots of areas of regulation in some sort of incremental way based upon learning and, and often trial and error rather than there being one fundamental transformation that may take place within society or one fundamental idea that will reform our capitalism. So I think I, I take from Beveridge um, a determination as a social scientist to um, analyze things at a micro level, to get data on many questions on which there, is, there are no data at all. I also take from Beveridge the importance of designing institutions to be incentive compatible. Right? So I think Beveridge's social insurance plan was, was largely in, incentive compatible. You may say that's, in a way, um, accepting too much the point of view of the propertied or the wealthy. But at the end of the day, regulation must appeal to them as well. It's rather like the, the analogy with contagion. Um, when the stench of the River Thames grew so great for the MPs that they had to pass a law to try and deal with cholera, that's when even the propertied and the wealthy, yes, began to see that regulation might be in their interests too. We very much hope in our type of society that it isn't necessary to have that sort of situation before we regulate to avoid the turbulences which arise from inequality. We'd like to have regulation of inequality before we have a fundamental crisis. I gave a talk at the LSE about 25 years ago about labor market regulation and argued that what the Webster had done could again be done for our own time. And a colleague said, what you really want to see happen is two world wars and a great depression. After all that, you would finally get the welfare state. At that stage, I thought that's far too pessimistic. But of course, we've had a fundamental financial crisis, haven't we? And very little has changed. So I appreciate the enormous difficulty of shifting the political and indeed academic consensus around these issues. In the social sciences, the financial crisis has changed the academic understanding of these issues remarkably little. And it took the Webbs and Beveridge decades to achieve what they did and a comparatively short space of time in the 1980s and 90s for that to be unraveled. So, yeah, I, I don't see this being a utopian vision. I just think, it, of, think of it as a very slow, incremental, and in many ways unglamorous process, I'm afraid. Is there a question again at the front? Yeah. 
I'm following on from that and also from the comment at the end, that kind of represents two ends of the spectrum in terms of capitalism and markets and values. I wondered what the panel would think about merging markets and values in the sense that if you, at the moment, capitalism and markets are driven by making money. And if you're in a position of being a CEO of an organisation, your goal is to make as much money as possible and have it provide as big a return for your shareholders. And you might have a, a lifespan in that role of, say, four years, and you might be making huge profits every year. Now, what would happen if, you, if we were able to kind of shift society so money wasn't the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal was something of social value, like how much you contribute to charity or to childcare or education and not just pure profit? Um, or is that a, a naive wish? Um, so no, it's not a naive... No, it's not, well, it may be a naive, naive wish in the sense that we haven't got there yet, but that doesn't mean we can't keep working for it. But, and I think where that comes to is, is to looking at the... And this is where the debate has always been around, you know, how the management or the regulation of capitalism, regulatory capitalism. But it's also is looking at the constituent components of, of capitalism. So, you know, part of that goes to the constitu- core constituent component of the corporation, which goes into corporate governance, which goes into the long, long-standing debate about the different nature of corporate governance, the role of directors' duties, you know, should it be legally enshrined in that, the, the motivation is absolutely for the for shareholder profit, should that have the sort of German model, should you try and incorporate those social values into those, into absolutely the heart of the decision-making, right into, as it were, the nerve centre of the way that the corporation works as a core component constituent of capitalism. So that's where that debate takes place it takes place in another constituent part of capitalism which is labor laws so this is absolutely in 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 Simon's territory and, and echoes what he was saying back 25 years ago about the structuring of those labor laws if you also then look at for example pensions is another really interesting area where you have a lot of risk shifting going so you had quite an interesting settlement coming through in the in the defined benefit scheme of pensions whereby it was the, the employer that was taking that risk to provide those benefits, post-work benefits for their employees, very strong, socially, um, legally facilitated system uh, and lat- only laterally regulated system of actually capitalist provision, as it were, of social in- social insurance for their workers, so that you didn't have the state to do that. What you've had, interesting, what you've had there is obviously a, a change completely and reversal in that risk arrangement. Um, which then puts more onus on the individual to manage their own financial risk and then falls that back on in terms of the, the role of the safety net of the state. So what you have is it's, it's changing that, that implicit bargain, as it were, between the state safety net and what it is that the, those capitalist institutions should themselves be providing, both whether it's both directly in terms of the financial provision that they should be providing for their, uh, their workers in terms of security, in terms of all those other add-ons that I was talking about, and I think, and then, so that you minimise the role of the state to have to do that. So you could go, you know, right back to Lord Leverhulme and, the, you know, Port Sunlight and that entire wraparound, as it were, of that particular model of the corporation or the, very much the Unilever-type model as well. Um, but what you, so it's, it's not utopian to think about that, it's just, it's, it's just really painful hard work because these debates have been going on for decades um, and it's, it's inching that progress through. So why not? That comes to power, that comes to usual politics. 
etc. But it's, it, it is about that finding that, that interface so that you get right into the constituent components of capitalism to try and open them up to a different and wider set of values. Yeah, I, I think there are some things that would definitely shouldn't be marketized, even in a capitalist economy, for that, for that economy to function. Um, one is the state. Um, we, we, we tend to talk about the rule of law and justice on the whole in terms which are not amenable to buying and selling it. Um, and I think that, that, that the gap between or the boundary between the market and the state has become too porous. So market values flow into the state, uh, private values of accumulation, and they are deforming and corroding our state from within. And they're ultimately going to corrode the rule of law because we can't maintain law's autonomy from these processes. That's the threat. And the justification for doing that is an intellectual one from uh, some social scientists who would reduce even what government does to some version of the market. Chicago School Price Theory, uh, the Virginia School Public Choice Theory, Law and Economics in one version. That's a fantastically dangerous idea. Corruption in its forms is little more than the invasion of the public sector by, by the private. So a failure to maintain a public-private divide constitutionally and institutionally is a fantastically dangerous step. And that, that's where we are, I think, in a society like ours, which has experienced 30 or 40 years or so of so-called neoliberal policymaking, seeing the state in such instrumental terms, marketizing the state, and of course, the health system, the education system, and so forth. I was struck thinking about Sean's presentation on Mexican telephony. What happened if we applied this logic to the school system? One way to protect the poor, it seems to me, is not to privatize our schools. But there's really nothing inherent in our education system that makes it unprivatizable. Right? And indeed, it's a, it's, it's a plan for many people. Uh, maybe telephony should be the same. It should be in the hands of the state. Um, well, te telephony was in the hands of the state for a long time, and it didn't advance very well in the hands of the state. So I, I think there are some reasons to have it, to have this, this private sector influence. Um, in, in countries like uh, Mexico, when you wanted a new telephone line in, in, the, uh, um, in the world where it was run uh, by the state, you would have to wait for a month, um, and that sped up when it was privatized slightly, but when, when there was competition from others to provide the, the, the object, uh, some type of distant telecommunication services, that's when um, quality improved for people. So I, I think uh, I wouldn't choose telecom as, as the area that should be state-run, but I'm, I'm not um, uh, mentioning the other sectors you, meant, you talked about. I think just, just if I may, I'm just have a second bite of this. To my mind, the, one, of the, one of the real dangers is, just to add on to these comments here, is the, the misconception of markets, which is then taken and applied to a public service. So we see this in the health system. We see this at the moment in the current debate about university education and what the nature of a, of a student uh, and the distinction between a student and a consumer um, and the, the marketization uh, and financialization of both of those systems. And I think it's, you know, you, the idea that you can take one model of the market that might operate completely purely in the private sector and you impose exactly the same model within, within a public government-run market in which government has a strong role and there are very strong social values at play there, then you have, you have a complete misplant 
in, te in technical terms, I think the, there's the, um, the National Audit Office has now started recognizing this, actually, and saying, well, actually, there are different types of markets with different types of consumers within them, and that what you need is, is that in terms of managing those, you can't just take a transplant from utilities market and say, well, actually, universities are going to work exactly the same way, which is current kind of government policy. Just to pick up on that point, I, I'm sure Sean's right about innovation, and we, we spoke earlier about Marx even saying that capitalism is needed for innovation. I think these things go in cycles, and uh, there comes a moment when the state can feasibly um, nationalise areas of industry which have stopped innovating much. After all, it did that with industries like coal, uh, which were privately founded and used the 19th century equivalent of venture capital, the same with the railways. Um, in capitalism's early period, at a later period, many of these firms were bankrupt, um, these companies were nationalized, and then again were privatized. So I, I think it's cyclical. Um, I just wonder whether we have a good theory of why we may be happy to privatize telephony, but not very happy, I would think, to privatize our school system. There's clearly a sense in which if everything in the school system were privatized, we'd see a whole lot of um, innovation. I think that's undoubtedly the case. And that's the spirit behind the free school movement. Of course, there is also, at the same time, the production of some extremely negative externalities, one of which will be, in the end, a waste of taxpayer money, almost certainly a distortion of spending decisions, and probably a lot of kids not getting educated. But whether in economic welfare terms the gains to the, the, the winners from that outweigh the losers is uh, a question an economist might pose, but I think a Democrat would want to insist on children getting and having a right to the same level of high-quality education, and that I don't think could be provided by the market. Further questions? <laughs> yep, sound here. Thank you. Um, so I feel like there's a lot of enthusiasm at the moment around areas like green finance, social impact investing, um, and they seem to function largely by leveraging popular sentiment to almost distort markets, so almost to invert the question and have social values pursue markets, sort of chase them down and, and twist their arm a bit to focus investment in, in, in certain areas. To what extent do you think this actually represents a real fundamental change in, in how we're doing business, and to what extent is it maybe slightly cynical greenwashing by asset managers and banks? I, I tend to go for cynicism over optimism most times, actually. Um, so, yeah, no doubt. No doubt there are, there are, there are some and there are um, not all um, moves towards sustainable production and modes of production are greenwashing. Um, but I think it's, it's marginal. It's at the margins. It's not at the core. Um, and I think, to be honest, when you have somebody like Sheryl Sandberg stand up and say, oh, Facebook is not about making profits, mm. when she's got a billion pounds, well, obviously slightly less now, worth in stock, um, I think you just have to really question, actually, motives. Yeah, I, I, I think that... Um, I'm not going to defend Milton Friedman. OK, I've defended Marx, Milton Friedman. When Milton Friedman said the job of a corporation is to make a profit... Um, and a company is well run if it's profitable. It's not well run if it's trying to do good things. Okay, his basic point was, on the one hand, here are corporations, they function well when they're profit-seeking organizations, but on the other hand, there is regulation, there is law. The other side of Friedman's article, less mentioned, 
uh, even by Chicago school people, is law is created by the public system, by the state, not by companies always regulating themselves. Accepting what Julia said earlier, I, I've also studied this and would have argued, yes, for self-regulation, and I'm sure I've written a couple of pieces about CSR saying it can work, but ultimately regulation of companies should be by the state, I think, not companies regulating themselves, partly because they are set up Yes, exactly, to be um, as profitable as they can be. So the economist model of the uh, maximizing agent, I don't think we now believe well describes a human person, does it? This is a behavioral revolution in economics. But it very well behaves, it very well describes the corporate form. Somehow we've created a rather unnatural institutional device um, which embeds the, the notion of profit maximization not just in our economy, but increasingly in, in our public life as well. That's a huge problem. So, I, of course, if we had effective laws and regulation, partly they would work by nudging. Okay, so I'm not saying that companies shouldn't attempt to reconcile um, environmental sustainability as far as they can with profit making, but that's really not what they are there to do. So I think there's a need for strong public regulation alongside these occasionally interesting, but in the end rather, I think, um, unsatisfying arguments about um, yeah, uh, green um, and environmental social responsibility. Yeah, um, I, I like your um, thoughts on cyclicality, Simon. And, um, and so I, I think that uh, it is... Uh, one, one, of, one of the uh, advantages of having a profit focus is that the numbers are clear. Mm. The numbers are clear, and, and, and then having more of the focus for companies on social values um, actually becomes difficult to implement, um, not only because there are multiple objectives, but because the, um, the, the, the non-profit objectives, I think, are much more difficult to measure in general. And, and so there's a measurement problem, and, and maybe it's better for somebody else to push companies towards these um, less measurable goals than to have the companies internalize that, because it will be very difficult for them to do so in a reasonable way. Yeah, there are these metrics and indicators, aren't there? There are whole consultancies and businesses that will sell you um, a set of social and, and green metrics. And that, of course, itself also is a private sector business and one which has, has thrived. And, and it, is, it is fascinating to, to, to study it. Um, but in the end, perhaps the results aren't altogether um, convincing. I think, though, I, I still want to defend the idea that the company, um, if it's run in a balanced way, wouldn't just have the objective of satisfying the shareholder interest. Okay. I, I think companies, when they're profitable, are also inevitably returning value to employees and to communities through taxation. Really, our system of taxation depends on what companies do at the end of the day. And I don't just mean corporate tax, but income tax is, in a way, uh, a tax on the company. Uh, the individual pays it, but it's, it's really taxing a type of corporate activity. Without that form of revenue generation, our states in their current form wouldn't function. So I think there's a strong symbiotic relationship between the way companies operate, and in a capitalist market economy, they do need to be profitable to generate a surplus. They absolutely do. And the welfare state captured part of that surplus for state education, health, and these other things that we collectively benefit from. So of course, yes, indeed, it makes it very difficult to 
undermine and destabilize capitalism if you see it that way, because it's highly implicated with uh, our modern social democracies. These are, these are genuine dilemmas. Of course, when the, when the corporation is disembedded from that process, when we have the use of the corporate form to evade tax on the scale that we're now familiar with, thanks to the Panama Papers and so forth, um, that is a serious problem. Because then if the company isn't at all contributing to the sustainability of governmental systems, there seems really to be very little justification for preserving it as a legal and social form. Got a question here? Yeah. Don't we have a fundamental problem in that um, capitalism is, is, is like a juggernaut, you know, and it, it, its capital is growing at a compound rate and it constantly needs to find places in order to invest. So it's moving into areas um, that were around social value. I'm thinking about social care, etc., cetera, where... Um, you know, the, maybe what's required is actually more labour um, to actually um, be available to support um, social services. And yet, um, you know, with its attempt to create innovation and profit, you're seeing, um, you know, technology going in there, maybe presenting a future which might not be so great. So that might be um, one issue. And it's also sort of going into areas of politics as well, in the sense that it's buying politicians... Um, you know, America witness Trump, etc. So I just like to—I don't know if that's a that's a problem um, that we can address or that the state can address, but I'd like the panel to address it. Any ideas? Okay. Well, um, I think you're right. You know, because if, if you have a sector where there are few profits, profit-making activity opportunities in that sense. Okay, social care is a good example. It's not about to be revolutionised by technology, or if it is, we, not, we don't yet understand how. It's very labour-intensive and it's delivering a service, person to person, human to human. If you privatise that sector, if you outsource it, in the end, those companies can only really be profitable in the way that capitalism requires them to be by battening down the wages, which they've done, and reducing the quality of the service to customers. That's right. So there are some sectors where this model undoubtedly will have that effect. There are other sectors which require probably some dynamic of capitalism in order to produce the type of technological innovation we've got. People say to me, you argue for high wages and a high labour cost in order to give firms in incentives to replace labour with capital. So workers lose their jobs because firms become more efficient. Yeah, this has always happened within capitalism. But of course, at the same time, that labour is released for other purposes. That's why so many people are employed in the health service or education uh, service of an economy like ours. There are many, many opportunities, I think in future there will be, for human beings to work. So, yeah, it's, it's a mixed economy. If you make the whole thing um, about profit maximisation, I agree with you. You've got a fundamental problem because you write about the tendency of capitalism to seek out the very highest rate of return and to compound it and to carry on until everything has been exhausted. But for me, it comes... Also, if you look at... Um, I think one of the interesting things that economists are starting to to move and to look at is not to look at welfare growth in the aggregate, but to actually realise that actually distributional effects are, are really the things that need to be taken account of. So the fact that overall figures, you know, you've got overall growth, etc., that actually has to move into looking at those distributional effects. I think looking at the social care system is interesting um, because what bites there is actually, yeah, you can have a very effective private market for social care, 
um, but it would not achieve the social value of enabling those who cannot afford the provision that the market is providing at the prices which are necessary for it to charge in order to ensure that you have highly paid labor would mean that a number of people are then priced out of the market. So I think that's a very good um, illustration of the juxtaposition and, the, and the, 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 the conflict, as it were, between a social value, which is to ensure that everybody has a certain minimum level of social care, notwithstanding their need and their ability to pay, um, and the recognition that the market is ne necessarily going to produce that good at that price, given the actual ability to pay rather than a willingness to pay. Economists often look at things on the basis of a willingness to pay model and, and identify, okay, well, the price is there because that illustrates people's willingness to pay rather than their ability to pay. So, and that's where that, that nexus comes in. That's where you have that. That's a, that's a kind of bleeding edge, and unfortunately quite literally, uh, of that clash that we have now because we have, because historically we focused on the NHS as our universal care provision, which we through, did through one type of uh, infrastructure our, through our governance infrastructure, through trusts, etc., whereas our social care system, as we know, is, is at the local authority level, not the central government level. So you have a different level, scale, as it were, of government organisation going through. And we had a national health system put in place, but not a national social care system, which was reliant originally coming up through the parishes. You've still got traces of poor law, etc., coming up through there. You've got, you've got traces of, of previous regulatory regimes going past centuries, actually, within the, the UK system as we currently have it. And that's where you have that very hard edge right now. Uh, just one quick thought on, on the point about uh, uh, the, the, the extending search um, of uh, capital activity. When, when, when toll roads are privatized, this is quite an interesting phenomenon because you cannot expect there to be large increases in efficiency from private operation of toll roads, I think. Um, but, uh, but the private operator has to recover a much higher return on capital than the state operator. And that means ultimately that prices have to go up and all the consumers on the toll road have to pay higher prices because of the privatization. The state may receive uh, a one-off gain, but the consumers ultimately will be worse off. And so, so I think that um, the, uh, there is a delicate balance to be made as to what type of activity should be a state activity and, and what type uh, may be uh, uh, appropriate for privatization. Um, we probably have time for one final question, if there's one in the room. Okay. There's not. I'm just, uh, I will just say thank you. Oh, there is, 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 was there a hand? Uh, no. Okay. Oh, okay. There is one here. Sorry. Thank um, you. So, I was just going to go back to your point about um, how companies can't pursue green objectives um, if their their reason to exist is to pursue the profit um, motive. Um, can capitalism ever pursue social values if capitalism is a system that's built on extracting natural resources? Um, and a social value is to live in a world that can sustain us. And so if you follow those two things, surely they're just diametrically opposed. Okay, not all of capitalism is based on the extraction of natural resources. Uh, if you think about sustainable development and clean energy and growth of different modes of that. I think so, but moving away from that particular technicality and back, back to the, the motivations and can you ever... 
divert a company away from a profit motive, um, I think one has to then look at the 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 sort of the the market infrastructure in which that company is operating, um, and therefore the incentives that it is being put upon it. And those incentives come not just from its shareholders, actually, but from uh, those who are seeking to invest in it, and then we now get into the asset markets and financial markets and the issues about short-termism in those markets and the needs for you know, ever-increasing um, proof that as an asset manager you are demonstrating that your funds are growing on a quarterly basis. Well, if as an asset manager your contracts and your trust contracts and, uh, that you're uh, committed to in relation to your beneficiaries, who might be the individuals of you and I, actually, and sitting in those pension schemes which are now bearing all that risk. If your trustees uh, of our money have said to the asset managers, you need to demonstrate that you've got very good performance on these investments, and you need to demonstrate that to me in every quarter, then the asset managers will be saying to the companies, well, I need to be demonstrating that my share prices are going up every quarter. Can you please ensure that? Uh, companies and directors are then incentivized through their pay packets to make sure to manage the principal agent problem uh, for the shareholders that, yes, their prof that, that they are incentivized to ensure that those profits go up on that very short-term basis. And so you have um, – it's not just – it, it is context matters. That is the, the big uh, issue – that is the big sort of cry, as it were, of all behavioralists and all of those – and all institutionalists, which is context absolutely matters. So you have to look at the wider institutional context in which those things are nested but then realize the, the loops that come back, as I say, is back to the U's and I's, uh, whose money, savings, pensions are being invested in those very same markets. So you have to see how that, that cycle operates, and therefore to see, well, how do you get the breaks in that? How do you get the management of that? How do you look at not only each individual component part, as I was talking about earlier, but how do you look at the system and those system interlinkages? And that's a really wicked problem. Any friend of thoughts? Okay. Um, that's a, probably a, a very thought-provoking um, point at which to end. Thank you so much to the panellists for these. I, I, it's a, such a difficult and ambitious question, and I think we've got some really um, interesting and, uh, I, I, I like to think, of positive answers. Maybe not, not, not just cynical answers, but some very positive answers as well. So, uh, final thank you. Thank you.